If you are helping a child work through something that they're anxious about, one of the things that turns them off is when you start giving too many examples of your experience. So as they're trying to figure something out, you start saying, well, when I was your age or the way that I do this or the way you can give maybe one, but when people give example, example, example of how that experience was for them, I had that experience with adults too, right? You're trying to tell something and somebody keeps jumping in and telling you their experience. Maybe give one example, but the reason we don't want to do that is for one, A lot of things have changed since we were kids. And so as soon as you start bringing up an example, particularly if you have a tween or a teen, they're going to dismiss you because you don't know what you're talking about. And it doesn't sound like or feel like to kids that you're really listening to them when you're giving so many examples of your experience. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. So Robin, today's episode is going to be called Ironic by Robin and Lynn. Okay. Because we're going to talk about talking less. <laughs> and anybody who knows me, hi mom, who's listening to this is going to be like, oh my God, please tell her to talk less. She's, I hope she takes her own advice. So anyway, I'm sort of known as a talker. You're no shrinking, quiet, violet yourself. So. But I would also say we're also known as listeners. We are. We are known as listeners. You can be both. Yes. And here's the thing. I'm not saying in general, globally, everybody should talk less. I'm saying there are certain situations, we are going to talk about this today, in which talking less with your kids, particularly if you are dealing with worry, is a really helpful strategy to employ. Well, we should give everyone context. If you're a regular listener, you know that Lynn often gives the advice to parents, talk 85% less. Yes. I'm going to put it on a mug. I keep threatening to do that. And I joke sometimes in my office with families, I'll say, okay, so I need you to talk 85% less. And the parent will be like, oh, I know. That's so true. I should really do And I'll say like, no, right now. <laughs> Start now. <laughs> Ready now. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. It's hard. A lot of times when we're worried, we want to process things out loud. And I think there really is a expectation or a belief that you just want to help talk your kids through something. That if we just talk about it, if we just talk about it, if I just give them more information, if I give them more reassurance, I just want to give them a running commentary about what's going on so that it will help. That's what I'm talking about. We're talking about the communication pattern that is almost coming from your anxiety and not from yourself. Mm -hmm. So as someone is chatting and chatting and chatting, it's the anxiety also talking about reassurance or catastrophizing or all of these different things. It's not talking from a conscious place. Right. And the other thing to think about too is that you want to give your kids some space from your commentary some space from your reassurance so they can do some problem solving. 
And a lot of times parents are talking and talking and talking because they are verbalizing the problem solving. They're verbalizing the steps. They're verbalizing the sequencing. All the things that I talk about that are great, but I want you to just be quiet so that you can give some space and some room for your kids to do that inside their own head without your help. Let's get very specific about a hypothetical situation that's really common with a six-year-old at a playground. Oh, that's such a good one. Yeah, I always, I often tell that story about following that catastrophic father and daughter up the mountain. I think I've told that on the podcast before where the dad was just giving a running commentary about every possible thing that could possibly go wrong. But that six-year-old on the playground, you're saying to them, hey, watch out for that. It's safety chatter a lot of the time. Watch out for that. Oh, wait, come on. Oh, you're too high. Oh, you're too, oh, watch. Oh, don't, oh, come over here. It's like a running warning of what could go wrong. So that's the catastrophic chatter that happens that we see all the time. And you know what else? We did another episode. Do you remember the episode we did when we talked about the mom and the child on the airplane sitting in front of me? Mm -hmm. The mom was narrating every single thing that was happening on the flight. Mm -hmm. The flight attendant's going to roll down the cart and offer us a beverage. We're taking off now. They're going to illuminate the fasten your seatbelt sign. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She was certainly paying her child a ton of attention. Mm -hmm. But if you were to choose words to connect with your child in that moment, would those have been the best words? Because instead it is using those words to make sure your child knows exactly what's going to happen. Right. So that's coming from a place of anxiety. Right. Instead of talking to your six-year-old and saying, where do you think all these families are going? Who do you think they're going to visit? Mm-hmm. Who do you think's picking them up at the airport? Oh, look at that. Yeah, or look at that, or using imagination, connection. What are you most excited to do on our trip? Mm-hmm. Those are the different types of conversation choices you could have versus coming from a place of anxiety talking. Right. Or I don't think I've ever told you my favorite game on a plane, which is let's notice how different everybody's hair is. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting. You can only see the backs of people's heads. It is amazing how many different types of hair there are. So we have a playground or that one you talked about, the mom with her child on a plane. It could be grocery shopping. There's the talking, which is sort of a conversation or evoking imagination or asking interesting questions. Like, let's look and see how many yellow boxes of cereal there are or that kind of stuff versus that narration of this is what's going to happen or the safety chatter. Be careful. Watch out. You're too high. You're too low. Move over here. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. So one way to differentiate it is Are you asking questions? Are you being curious? Are you sparking imaginative thought? Or are you giving a running commentary that really comes from that place of of safety and danger and watch out and be careful? Or control. Or Or control. Setting expectations. And the other thing that is critical for nurturing really connective conversation with younger kids is asking those questions and then being quiet Mm -hmm. so that they can answer your questions on their own timeline because they may not blurt out an answer quickly. But if you're quiet, eventually they have something to say. And one of the ways you could do it is you can say, oh, I wonder. 
right? So I ask kids that, like, I wonder what you're thinking about, or I wonder what you would do if you were in that situation. I wonder where those families are going, that kind of thing. So you're asking questions and then you're leaving space for them to think. One of the things that we want to pay attention to with worry, like you said, is that it wants more information. It wants reassurance. It wants to focus on safety. It wants to focus on controlling the outcome. And there's not a lot of room. So there's not a lot of room for error. There's not a lot of room for exploration. There's not a lot of room for risk, right? We always want kids to be able to experience some reasonable risk. And so it means that you have to just take it back a notch. The other example where it comes up, so the six-year-old in a playground is a great example. The other example that I come across all the time is that if you have a picky eater at the dinner table, when families go into restaurants or when they're eating around food, there can be a lot of talking about what you're going to eat, what you're not going to eat, what you're going to order, how you should be eating. And it is really helpful if you have a picky eater, and we did an episode on this too, but to establish that this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to have our meal, and then be quiet and let your child work through it a little bit rather than offering so much language about it. So much language about it. Yeah. And then I'll give you another one of my sort of rules, I guess, for lack of a better word, is that. If you are helping a child work through something that they're anxious about, one of the things that turns them off is when you start giving too many examples of your experience. So as they're trying to figure something out, you start saying, well, when I was your age or the way that I do this or the way you can give maybe one, but when people give example, example, example of how that experience was for them. I had that experience with adults too, right? You're trying to tell something and somebody keeps jumping in and telling you their experience. Maybe give one example, but the reason we don't want to do that is for one, a lot of things have changed since we were kids. And so as soon as you start bringing up an example, particularly if you have a tween or a teen, they're going to dismiss you because you don't know what you're talking about. And it doesn't sound like or feel like to kids that you're really listening to them when you're giving so many examples of your experience. So it pulls you in rather than showing that you're externally connected. So that's something to pay attention to as well. Here's another thing that drives kids crazy is when we just repeat ourselves over and over and over again. Say you're trying to get your child to do something. Say that they're worried about something and you're trying to encourage them or coax them. Or you just want them to do something like you need to go clean your room or you need to go empty the recycling. Say it and then just give them some space to process that and figure out what they're going to do next with the information you've given them or the requests that you've made. So when you repeat, 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 they just tune you out. The thing that happens a lot of times with kids is that parents that talk too much, parents that talk at their kids all the time, So it's a running stream of commentary. They know that they don't have to listen to the first five or six requests. They're waiting for the tone or the volume to change, and then they'll get up and do what they need to do. That happens a lot with kids waking up in the morning. They're like, I have asked you five times to get out of bed so you're not late for school. And then finally, when I don't understand why she only gets out of bed when I finally lose it and I scream at her that we have to leave in 15 minutes. And I say, because you're the human snooze button. And she knows that that last freak out 15 minutes before departure time 
is the one she actually has to pay attention to. What's your advice on that then? Just start with the freak out? Save time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my advice on that. Getting up in the morning and setting an alarm and listening to it is a really good skill to have. I can't tell you how many parents say to me, he just slept through five alarms. No, he didn't. He didn't sleep through five alarms. It's giving them the responsibility and maybe figuring out, I'm not against parents waking up their kids in the morning, particularly if they're little, but then once you wake them up, then you don't have to keep going back in over and over again. And you can give them a warning and say, we're leaving in 10 minutes and either you're ready to go or we're going to be late. And then do that. Don't say anything else. And then let them miss the bus or let them be late or let them miss soccer practice. They depend on us to be that constant reminder because you have set it up that they can depend on your verbalizations as their cue. And you want to pull back on that a little bit. Let's talk about teens after this break. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, many are destined to fail. But lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra-concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free, and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So 
Help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. So now we're going to talk about teens where I will share that as a mom, I I feel pretty good about my performance with not doing that with younger kids and having a lot of questions asked and like very slow, intentional conversations, especially when they were younger to kind of set that stage. Because you actually told me something that said, pay attention to the things that matter to them, even if they aren't big deals, because Mm -hmm. they'll one day become big deals. Right. So I always, if they want to get really excited and talk to me about something that is kind of hard to focus on, mm-hmm. I remember that and I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that now being a parent of a teen, it's much more challenging to be mindful of that just because you're talking to someone who is almost an adult mm-hmm. and the conversations can move around very quickly. And I'm probably not so good about the chatter aspect. So talk to us about how to have really good talks with teens. So I think we want to take away this idea that we have to have really good talks with teens and really focus on the idea that we want to have strong connection with teens. And so one of the things that happens with teenagers is that They don't want to share all the details of their lives at the time when we really want the details because we're like, oh, what are they doing? They developmentally are just becoming more particular about what they share with parents because their peers are taking that top spot in terms of who they're talking to and who they're getting advice from and that kind of stuff. So at the very time when you feel like you want a lot of information, is when they're going to pull back from giving you information, and that can tend to make us feel anxious and want to have lots and lots of conversations. So what you want to think about is, how do I stay connected to my teen, but not necessarily thinking about that as having to have a lot of conversations and talking? There are so many other ways to stay connected. Some of them are verbal, but some of them are nonverbal. Making sure that you are giving your teen opportunities, it's the same with the little kids, but you're giving your teen opportunities to share what they want to talk about rather than your agenda. So the more that you are talking to your teen with your agenda, the more that they're going to pull back. The more that you talk to them and allow them to create the agenda they want to talk about, then the more likely that they're going to listen when there's something that you really do need to discuss with them. So be open to them talking about things and maybe things you're not so interested in, but you have to be a really good listener. Let me give you an example, like a kind of a universal parent-teen example. If you are talking to your child who is a new driver Mm -hmm. And you want to really express the point of no texting and driving. Mm -hmm. That's a conversation where I can imagine as the parents really trying to make the point and stress it and underscore it, that's where a lot of extra talk is going to come into play. 
That's a very good example, and it really pertains to anything where safety and judgment is involved. So we'll go over it over and over and over and over again because we really want to bring that point home. One of the things that I did with my boys when they were teenagers is that they knew we had had discussions about what the rules were and what the expectations were with driving. And when they would leave the house and they would say, I'm leaving, or I was handing them the car keys, I would say to them, speech, speech, speech. Or I would say, you know, all the stuff I've talked to you about before, I am saying it again to you right now. And I wouldn't say it all again, but I would just remind them. So without a lot of words, I would even point to their forehead and I would say, I want you to recall right now all the things that we've talked about. Okay, but let's go back and let's hear one of your speeches about texting and driving. Uh, I would be pretty direct about it. And I would say, it's going to be very tempting for you to text and drive. It is going to be very hard for you to resist that based on what we know about how tempting it is for you to pick up that phone while you're texting and driving. I will tell you, and I'm happy to show you the research if you would like to see it, and we can even watch that episode on Mythbusters about distracted driving. You will be a worse driver when you're texting comparable to if you were drunk driving. If you can say to me, mom, I'm not going to go and drink and get behind the wheel of a car, then you also have to recognize that you are not going to text while you're behind the wheel of a car. The impairment is the same. I'll give you the research. You can look at the information yourself. It's tempting. I get it. Don't do it. You're going to have to fight that impulse. And just to be clear, then that's all you'd say. That's all I'd say. And then I'm going to give the reminder, right? So I'm going to say like, hey, remember, dude, Mythbusters, when they're heading out, I'm going to give them that little reminder so that they will recall the conversation because you don't want to numb them to your repetitive words. You don't. The other thing that I did with my kids, and if you have kids that are going to be driving soon, this was a strategy that my husband and I used for one, and I've talked about this before. We were very open about the dangers of substance abuse. And so they heard that from us in no uncertain terms. We didn't pull any punches about how stupid we thought it was to get behind the wheel of a car and drive when you were impaired. So they heard that a lot. And then when we were driving, when they were younger and about to get their license, if we were driving behind somebody who was sort of going over the yellow line or who was not paying attention, we would say to them, do you see how badly this person is driving in front of us? I'm guessing they're probably on their phone. Or as we've discovered recently, eating a muffin because my husband is the worst driver when he's eating a muffin while he's driving. (laughs) It's true. Um, But we would say to them, see how that guy is driving erratically? Or do you notice how that person is not paying attention? I bet they're on their phone. That's the impact of you being a distracted driver. And we would just throw that out there as examples. So we weren't lecturing them in big, long lectures, but it was like a little snippet here, a little snippet there, an example there. So your family is out in a car Mm -hmm. and you see someone swerving. And Lynn, as a mom, says, look at how distracted this driver seems to appear. I bet they're texting. And that's a very dangerous choice to make. Mm -hmm. End of story. End of story. But the anxious mom might say what? 
the anxious mom might say, okay, so now the reason I'm telling you this is because you're going to get your license in two years. And I'm going to put one of those apps on your phone that is going to show me how fast you're going and where you're going. And I am telling you, it is really hard to not text when you're on the phone. We know that, right? So I'm just warning you right now. If I ever find out that you are texting and driving, oh, I'll just tell you this. Do you know my friend uh, Phyllis? Well, her brother-in-law just got in a terrible accident. And I'm pretty sure that he was texting. And his wife was so mad at him. And then you tell this catastrophic story. And they're like, mom, shut up. We know that teenagers roll their eyes a lot at us when we say things. I actually think sometimes that when a teenager, if you're an anxious mom and if you or dad, and you tend to lecture and you tend to tell a lot of catastrophic stories, notice the eye roll as a little bit of a warning sign for you that it's time to be quiet. So that eye roll, if you are a lecturer, that means they have tuned you out. That means you have lost your audience. A short statement, giving them some information, giving them an example, and shutting your mouth can be a lot more powerful. Well, one of those examples in the first one where we're describing you, you're speaking from a place of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And in the second example, the anxiety is doing the talking. That's right. That's worry. Worry often feels like just more information is better. If I can just bombard you with information, if I can just tell you this over and over and over again, it's going to sink in. You need to hear it. You need to hear it. And that's just not how good verbal communication works, particularly between parents and teens. Here's the other thing I want you to pay attention to. If you only talk to your teenager in this worried, lecturing, I'm going to give you information It is so hard for teenagers these days. I'm so worried about you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are going to shut you out even before you open your mouth. Look for opportunities to just have casual, short, pleasant conversations with them. It's sort of like if you had a friend that whenever you ran into them at the store or whatever, that you knew what was coming, like they were going to talk to you nonstop and you weren't going to be able to get away from them you would purposely avoid them. There was a woman I knew in Concord. She has since moved away. But if I was walking down the street in Concord and I saw her coming, I would literally cross the street. She was a very nice person, but she talked at me so much that I wanted to avoid her. Give your kids evidence that you can have pleasant, short, non-anxious conversations with them that they can enjoy. Think about how you're going to connect with your teen, not just around your worry and your fear, not just around expectations or obligations or telling them what they have to do or asking them how their homework is, but just bring up some conversation with them, something that they're interested in. And also remember that you can connect with your teenager non-verbally. So even just sitting down and watching a show with them, even just going for a walk and not feeling like you have to talk to them the whole time is a really good way to connect. You're priming the pump. It's like what you said before, Robin. You talk to the little kids about the little things because for them, they're not the little things. So that when there are big things, they'll talk to you. It's the same way. You want to foster that connection where they feel like they can talk to you and they're not going to get lectured, you're not going to overreact, and you're not going to be just this constant stream of worry and anxiety and expectations, et cetera. 
Let's talk about this in the broader scope of the parents listening to this as they're thinking about their own anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I noted in my own parenting journey is that there were certain chapters of my life. I was more isolated from other adults. I was with kids all day. Mm -hmm. And then there would be that moment where I would talk to another adult. And it's like a vomit of conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I was ever the woman that you avoided across the street, but I definitely would have had those moments where I wasn't talking from a place of being grounded. I was talking because I was anxious, because I was doing things that challenged me mm -hmm. as a parent that day. And then like when I finally talked to another adult, I've got all this energy. So I think that how grounded you are versus how much you are talking from a place of anxiety is self-reflection that is worthwhile. Because as you said that, a lot of people who they say they're teenagers don't tell them anything. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's an indication that strengthening authentic and grounded communication is something to work on. Because if you're always coming at your kid from that anxiety chatter, no one wants to engage with it, even other adults. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes, that's exactly correct. And your kids want to connect with you. They do. What gets in the way of that is when they feel like if they're, what's that expression, in for a penny, in for a pound, is that say they have a concern, say they have something that's difficult for them, say they had a fight with a friend, say they're not sure about something, say there's some drama going on, say they're disappointed about something, and they bring that up with you, and you launch, they're not going to bring it up with you again. And it's so easy to do. So easy to do. So easy to do. I'm sure you probably did that once or twice as a parent, right? <laughs> I, I am not. I am not a perfect parent. I am not. I, I'm sure I've done it like 82 times. Yeah. Because I can think of one specific example of when my daughter told me something. It involved social media. It was the first time something like that had come up. Yeah. Man, it triggered my mama bear, and I had this huge reaction. Mm -hmm. And I then said to her the next day, I got really out of control in my reaction to that, and I'm sorry I did, and I just want you to know that I'm aware that I really overreacted. Which is always a fine thing to do, right? When we screw up as parents and then we model owning our own stuff and taking responsibility for it and apologizing and giving a short explanation for what went on, that can be really helpful. That's a sentence I don't mind throwing out. I really overreacted in my response. Yeah. Because it's, it's so easy to do. Yeah. The other thing too, I mean, that reminds me of something else that I used to do as a parent is that when my kids were doing something that was frustrating or they had done something that I couldn't believe they did, I would say to them, I need a little quiet. I need a little time away from your cute little faces so that I can figure out how I want to react to this. And that meant that I wasn't reacting to them. Sometimes I would say like, you two need to just go away from me for a little while. Let me think about this, and then we shall get back together. That gave me the time to sort of gather my thoughts so that I wasn't spewing and repeating myself and overreacting. 
also, quite honestly, they would go away and they'd be like, oh, so it made them stew it a little bit too. It sounded like you narrated your own parenting podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll be right back after this break. My four and six-year-old just covered their faces with lipstick. We'll be right back after this break. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's really okay to take time. And I think when I say talk 85% less, it really is my message to say it is okay for you to sit in silence. It's okay for you to take your time. It's okay for you to say what you need to say once and then give them some time to absorb it. You are going to have to say things over and over and over again, just not in quick succession in a period of five minutes. Over the period of time when my sons were driving cars, I gave them direction about not being a knucklehead probably 700 times. Give the instruction, and then, of course, you have to sort of let go, and that feels really scary. But just pay attention to how much you're talking at your kids, as you said, Robin, from that place of worry. Just slow it down. Listen. If they don't have a response, that's okay. You can even say to your child, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm just curious about how that happened, but you might not have an answer right now, so maybe we can talk about it later. Space and time are really, really helpful to just foster better communication. After this break, we'll take our first listener question of the season. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful, but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then, like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. It's in-network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. I am really working on improving my diet by making sure that I get the best quality products, organic foods, and I really want to make sure that I'm not using harsh chemicals in my home. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting everything online and then quickly shipped to my doorstep, that is a huge time saver. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. I can use their filters to suit my lifestyle needs. So maybe you're looking for organic snacks for your kids, or maybe you're gluten-free. As a Thrive Market member, I save money on every single grocery order. You will too. On average, I save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily, always has some of my favorite brands. 
When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash flusterclucks. Thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks. Okay, Lynn, what were you saying? So, Lynn, I have a listener's question really about semantics that I think will be very helpful to many people. She asks, I would love to talk about the difference between stress and anxious state and clinical anxiety disorders. I often hear these being used synonymously. And how do they differ or stay the same? Okay. Yeah, that is a good question. And people ask me this a lot because there are so many words that we have to to describe the state. I often differentiate between anxiety and worry. So let me just give that quick little differentiation that I think I've given before. When we're talking about worry, we're talking about a cognitive process that's happening up in your prefrontal cortex. So when you're worrying, that's a thinking process. You're creating that scary movie. You're going over things in your head. So that's a cognitive process when people are worrying. When we talk about anxiety, the definition or what we talk about clinically with anxiety is the physical reactions that people have in their body once their amygdala has been fired off and they're having those reactions, like your heart rate is up and your palms are sweaty and your tummy feels sick. I don't actually love that definition because I think it sort of gets in the way of people understanding how the many ways that anxiety shows up and manifests itself. And I don't like that people get so focused on just the physical symptoms because that's actually the least interesting thing to me about anxiety. So when I talk about anxiety, I prefer David Barlow's definition, which is that it's an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of your resources to handle it. When people are feeling anxious, it means that they fired off the very powerful biological system that's in our bodies and in our brains to protect us from danger, but there's no danger. So if you are running away from a grizzly bear and your heart is pounding, you're breathing fast, you won't even notice that your tummy feels weird, but you're running away from a grizzly bear, you're not running away saying like, oh, I'm feeling so anxious about this grizzly bear. That's a fear response. And that's how this system is supposed to work. But when we're talking about anxiety, that's the same fear response but it's more of a false alarm. Now, when people are talking about stress, we use stress in a way that is often associated with chronicity. So I am so stressed about this, but we could also just easily substitute in, I'm so anxious about this, or I'm so worried about this. I have a job interview and I'm so stressed about it. I have a job interview and I'm so worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing. I have a job interview and I'm so anxious to get the job. So we definitely use those terms interchangeably. Stress is generally seen as something that is chronic and in the environment. You're taking care of a chronically ill family member. 
you are trying to figure out how you're going to pay your mortgage. You've got a situation that you're dealing with at your job that just over time feels very stressful. But again, people use those terms interchangeably. If we are talking about an anxiety disorder, the way we differentiate between the normal, not comfortable, but normal worry, stress, anxiety that we all feel with an anxiety disorder is that when it's really impairing the normal developmental stages of a child or impairing your adult life such that you're not enjoying your relationships, you're not able to do the things you need to do, like get to your job, you're not leaving your house, that you've got so many physical symptoms that perhaps you're taking over-the-counter medications or sometimes prescription medications or sometimes not medications at all to try and deal with the physical symptoms. You're going to the doctor or to your nurse practitioner a lot so that it really is taking over your functioning. And then we would put it in the category of an anxiety disorder. One of the things I think is really helpful for people to know that the way that anxiety becomes a disorder very often is that you start worrying about the anxiety symptoms themselves. So if you feel panicky about something, you don't have panic disorder. If you start worrying or fretting or avoiding any situation that might make you feel panicky, then it becomes panic disorder. So an anxiety disorder becomes a disorder because we go inside with the situation, the symptom, the trigger, and we do a whole different experience of, oh no, oh no, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? This is too big a problem for me to deal with. And that's when things really spiral out of control. So it is a matter of semantics for sure, but that's kind of the definitions that people most often use. I love to speak in public. I'm totally fine speaking in public. And everybody asks me sort of what's a situation that would make you nervous speaking in public? You like to speak in private too. So I don't know why. You like to you like to speak. I do like to speak. I do. I enjoy an audience. Let's just say that. People who have difficulty public speaking just can't even understand this. But if somebody said to me, Hey, do you want to speak in front of a hundred people or a thousand people? I'd be like, a thousand people, duh, of course. But I just had a, a new speaking experience. Okay. I had for the first time. So I was invited to give the academic convocation at a college this past week. And I got to speak in front of a huge group of college students and professors. And I got to wear regalia. So for those of you who are in academia, you're like, oh, God, we have to wear those things all the time. I had never gotten to wear one before. I got to march in with the college president. It was just really fun. And I did feel a little bit of sort of like flutteriness that I don't usually feel, but it was really excitement. So anyway, it was kind of a cool thing. That is very cool. Yeah. And I read my speech, which I never do because they told me I I had 10 to 15 minutes. If you're afraid of speaking and somebody says to you, you have to speak for 12 hours, you're like, oh my God, for me, I'm like, good. If you say to me, you can only speak for 15 minutes, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. So that's terrifying for me. I think now is the appropriate time for us to recall how you opened this episode with the theme being ironic. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's true. I know, it's true. And again, let's just also talk about the importance of differentiation. 
There are times when talking is really good. I make my living talking and I enjoy it. But I've had to learn as a parent that there are times, and as a spouse actually, there are times when it's really important to just shut your pie hole. I really want to end the episode with shut your pie hole. (laughs) (laughs) If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.